Hear the word of the Lord. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine, champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Now you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the man standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes his disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. And when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can I even speak? Then he turned turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has both the lion and the bear killed. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has desecrated, defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go. And the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves. 
For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, last Sunday, we traveled 400 years from the days of Joseph to the time of Moses. We saw how two foundational parts of the biblical story, covenant and kingdom, relate to each other and become interwoven in one's life. Our relationship, our covenant with God as our Father, is naturally expressed by living into our responsibility, the kingdom, to our responsibility to God as our king. This weekend, today, we fast forward another 400 years from the journey of Moses to the story of David, the shepherd boy who would become king. We have just a snapshot of his life here in this passage, and we will talk about it, but really this is kind of an overview of David's life, and it's a little difficult to do just in one sermon, because the story of David's life is one of the longest in Scripture. It takes up much of the Old Testament, in fact. Abraham had 14 chapters devoted to him, Joseph 13, Moses 40. There are 66 chapters devoted to the life of David, 57 New Testament references, the story of his life is in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and there's a part of his life in 1 Kings. But in addition to the history of David, specifically what happened in his life, we also have a window, uniquely for David, a window into how he personally processed these events through the book of Psalms. Psalms, as you know, I hope, is one of the most intimate books, intimate books of the Bible, offering us, in many ways, David's journal entries, they're his prayers, his laments, his complaints, his cries for help, his confession of sin, and his overwhelming thanks for God's presence and intervention in his life. What David records through song represents, I think, the wide range of human experience. He, in many ways, typifies what it means to be human. And yet, surprisingly, in the Old Testament and then later on in the New, when Paul preaches, centuries later at Piscean Antioch, when Paul is preaching, he describes David not as a man of the people. He describes David as a man after God's own heart. Why? Why? Why do we think of David as a man after God's own heart? I want to suggest to you this morning that perhaps the reason we think of David this way is because those twin themes of covenant and kingdom, of relationship and responsibility, are in full effect throughout his life. As we continue to try to, I try to lay this foundation for you about covenant and kingdom, relationship and responsibility. Another way to think about these two themes is to think of them in terms of being and doing. And time and time again, thinking of this in terms of David, time and time again, David shows that he knew who he was, that his being came out of his relationship with God, that his identity came out of knowing that he was a child of God, his father. We began this morning our call to worship, and it was intentional with Psalm 23. And I ask you, seriously, is there a greater statement of covenant, a greater statement of relationship than when David begins, the Lord is my shepherd? And do you ever notice that David ends that same psalm that he writes, one that we memorized as children, he ends that psalm with the same focus with which he started. The Lord is my shepherd, and the psalm ends, you are with me. He ends as he begins with the focus on the covenant, the relationship with God. And throughout the psalm, David uses different metaphors to express the Lord's presence, to express that relationship in his life. The primary metaphor, as we know, is this relationship between God as his shepherd and the sheep. 
But David also speaks of a traveler and a fellow companion. God is a, as a host and he is a guest. And each of these metaphors expresses David's confidence in God, his awareness of that relationship, that covenant. This is because David grind, grounds, excuse me, grounds his confidence not in himself, but in God who is his shepherd. His identity is found in God who is his shepherd, his navigator, his host, the father who is at work in him. Another way to think of this, beloved, is that the 23rd Psalm shows us what many other of David's songs show us, that the way that David is shaped, his identity, his sense of self, his living out of the covenant comes through his worship of Yahweh. Worship informed David's identity. It informed his confidence, his being in relationship with God. Worship shapes our sense of self. That's why we gather on Sunday. I don't know, it's always helpful to ask ourselves, why are we here? Tradition, obligation, we're here, we're called here to be reminded not just about Sunday, but about a principle of life if we're living in the covenant, in relationship with this God, that our worship with this God informs, it's intended to shape our sense of self. We are what we worship. So as we gather each and every week, if you come here and you're struggling with identity, if you're struggling with confidence, if you're struggling with that awareness of who you are, look at what's shaping you. Stop and look at what's informing your sense of self. That's part of why we gather. It's a, it's a backstop against all of the other forces, all of the other things in the world, in our lives, that can seek to shape us and inform our sense of who we are. Worship together on Sunday, is intended to realign us, reorient us to the covenant that we are shaped primarily. Our identity comes out of our relationship with God. We come to worship to be reminded that the everyday of our lives, not just on Sunday, but in the everyday of our lives, we are intended to be defined, transformed, developed, growing, maturing, not based on what the world says about us, not based on what others say about us, not even what we say about ourselves. We are shaped, we are growing, we are maturing because of who God is and who God says we are. If we are created in the image of God, with the impression of God upon us, then we need to focus on whom we reflect in order to best understand who we really are. Worship, if you've never thought of it this way, is like looking in a mirror. Looking in a mirror when we try to come before the presence of God. And so, beloved, with all tongue-in-cheek, all trying to be a little cute, we need to stop gazing at our navels. Many of us gaze at our navels. That's kind of our default position when the, when the challenges of life hit us or when we're bored. And instead, we need to examine the impression, the imprint that God has left upon us when he made us. And that's why we gather, to, to, to make that a practice that doesn't just happen on Sunday, but every day of our lives. And that's what David models for us, this understanding of covenant through worship. That worship of God is how he builds his relationship and it fosters his confidence. It's what gives him his being. And again, if covenant is about being and kingdom is about doing, it's out of David's being, his identity, that his doing his authority emerges in his life. Out of his understanding of his relationship, his covenant with the Lord as his shepherd, his father, David, knew and did what he had to do. He represented the kingdom. He represented God's living reign and rule throughout his life. Notice also in the 23rd Psalm, the kingdom language of authority and power that comes out of covenant, out of that relationship with God. Notice how David speaks of 
God is my shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, and he leads me. If God is our shepherd, David says, we shall not be in want. That's a statement of power and authority. If God is our companion on the journey, David says, we will fear no evil. That's a statement of power and authority. David says, if God is our host, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a statement out of confidence of power and authority. Beloved, bringing this together just in Psalm 23, notice that when we fulfill our responsibility, when we represent our Father by being his kingdom ambassadors, our lives experience the peace and contentment that David alludes to with green pastures and still waters. Throughout his life, we see David doing out of his being. Beloved, are you doing out of your being? Or is your being coming out of your doing? Are you exercising your authority and power by your own initiative, by your own strength, and therefore trying to prove yourself, establish your identity? Or as David models for us, do you know who you are? Does your identity, your confidence in who you are in Christ, with God as your Father, inform the power and authority that's at work in your life, the things that you're about and that you're doing? David's worship of God, his relationship, fueled his work for God. David's worship of God fueled his work for God, and so it is meant to be for us. But like I said, this is an overview of David's life. And as I say this, that David is a model for us of covenant and kingdom, there should be some alarm bells going off for us right now. I made the statement that it's out of David's worship of God that that fueled his work for God, But if you know anything about David, you know that the journey of covenant and kingdom for David was not always a smooth one. You see, what's fascinating about David is David was a man of contrasts. His his life was a a culmination of emotional and spiritual highs and lows. Have you ever stepped back and thought about David's life that way? On the one hand, David left us an example of passionate love of God expressed through some of the most touching and beautiful poetry ever written. And on the other hand, David is guilty of some of the most serious sins recorded in the Bible. Do we often hold that tension together? David was a mighty warrior, a great military conqueror, but he could not conquer himself. Perhaps the most powerful example of this and it's not the only one in David's life, but perhaps the centerpiece of, again, just how There's such contrast in David's life is that one night, if you know this story, a night in which lustful indulgence overtook David, he slept with a married woman named Bathsheba. And that had disastrous consequences in his life. To cover up this affair that resulted in a pregnancy, David had one of his most trusted generals, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed. In taking Uriah's wife, Bathsheba as his own, David fathers Solomon, one of Israel's greatest kings indeed, but he also fathers Absalom, whose rebellion not only tore apart David's family, but nearly all of Israel as well. Murder and adultery, arguably two of the more serious sins in the Bible. Increasing bloodshed, familial grief, governmental dysfunction, And this is the guy we call a man after God's own heart? Am I the first person who's ever asked this question? This is as good as it gets? 
This is a man after God's own heart. We all learn this in Sunday school. And isn't it convenient in Sunday school? We lift up David. He's a man after God's own heart. And we memorize this as children. And you can't get any better than David. And then you get older and you find out, oh, well, really? They don't tell you in Sunday school about the other part of the story. What do we make of this? Beloved, what I want to suggest to you, and it's meant to be an encouragement, and it's one we need, is that maybe being a person after God's own heart doesn't mean being perfect or flawless. I don't know about you, but oftentimes that's how it was presented. That David being a man after God's own heart meant, well, that's the standard. And I used to think, as I became a teenager, and teenagers do this, well, if that's the standard, and I haven't committed murder or adultery, then I'm above David. But it's not about being perfect or flawless. David clearly wasn't without his faults or problems. And then again, who isn't? Right? I mean, who isn't? We're all broken. I mean, it's good for us to acknowledge this about David. David wasn't without his faults or his problems, but who isn't? We all struggle. The difference, and this is what's, the, what's key, the difference is that in David's heart, the difference in his heart where we say he was a man after God's own heart was displayed not because he wasn't broken, not because he wasn't flawed. The difference is in how he responded to his brokenness to his flaws, to his sin. That's that, that encounter with Bathsheba that led to not only the, the sin of adultery, but the sin of murder, of killing Uriah, her husband. David kind of tried to move on, but when he is confronted finally by the prophet Nathan, if you know this story, when he's confronted finally by the prophet Nathan with what he's done in terms of Bathsheba and Uriah, he repents. He turns his life around. That word repentance. He turns his life around. He turns and puts God back at the center of his life. And he faces the consequences of his actions. If covenant's about relationship and if kingdom is about responsibility, David models what both of these things look like even when we fall short of God's intentions. Even when we fall short of God's glory. He models for us that covenant is about prioritizing the relationship with the Father. And that kingdom is about taking responsibility for what we have done or what we have failed to do. Psalm 23 is how we started our service. A little bit later, we're actually going to pray as a prayer of confession, Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is an insightful and poignant example of this response of David. It's believed to have been written by David. You'll see that in the tagline for the song. It's believed to have been written by David as part of his repentance for having Uriah killed and taking his wife. In it, and remember this when we say it together, in it, listen to how he realigns himself with the covenant, with the relationship. Against you and you alone have I sinned. Notice how he seeks in that prayer to live in light of the kingdom, in light of his responsibility. You do not delight in sacrifices, David will write, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. It's interesting. I don't know if you've ever caught this, what David specifically says here. It's very interesting that David says, you don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. You don't delight in sacrifices. It's interesting what David says here because if you know the story, his predecessor as king, King Saul also had a time when he was confronted by sin. Remember this story? 
When King Saul was confronted by, about his sin, he had blatantly disobeyed God. And Saul, contrary or in a contrast to David, when he's confronted about blatantly disobeying God, he tries to avoid and deny responsibility for what he's done. He tries to avoid the consequences of his actions through various animal sacrifices. And in response to avoiding responsibility, in response to not accepting the consequences, the prophet Samuel, God speaks to the prophet Samuel and says directly, directly to Saul, I want obedience and not sacrifice. David, in the midst of his own confession, confronting his own disobedience, takes responsibility and accepts the consequences and acknowledges, God, you don't delight in sacrifice. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. What you want is a broken spirit. What you want is a broken and contrite heart. Beloved, a person after God's own heart, a man after God's own heart, is someone who understands and lives their life out of an awareness of covenant and kingdom. A person after God's own heart is someone who prioritizes their relationship with God the Father by taking, rather than avoiding or denying, their responsibility. And this kind of responsibility, the beginning of the kingdom, starts and ends with taking responsibility rather than avoiding and denying our own sin. It sounds so simple, and yet outside the walls of the church, inside the community of Christ, is this not our persistent struggle? How many of us, how many of us, despite believing in Jesus, how many of us tend to live, despite believing in Jesus, more like Saul than we do David? How often in our lives, I'm not talking here on Sunday, you know, we, it's, it's great on Sunday because generally we direct our worship, you know? Now it's time for the prayer of confession, and obviously you don't have to pray it, but more often than not, we all engage in that. But out in the world, in living our lives, how often do we live like Saul more than we do David? How often in our lives, in our day-to-day -day moments, do we blame others? It's their fault. They started it. It's not my problem. Some have written that we are becoming more and more a society of blame. It's always someone else's fault. It's always someone else's responsibility. How many of us in our day-to-day -day lives tend to live more like Saul rather than David? Tend to, again, point the finger at everyone else. We can just go off on all the things that are wrong with this community, with this country, with our family, and we can point out specific people who are the source of that problem, how many of us, our default is to point our finger instead of taking a long, hard look in the mirror and facing the log in our own eye? And how many of us, like Saul, and, and I include myself in this, find our default position when the light gets a little bit brighter, when the, the, it gets a little bit more of a narrow focus on our own lives. How many of us, like Saul, have this tendency to duck and dodge our responsibility, the consequences of our actions? If we're really, really honest this morning, and I know that for some of you, I'm going to prick right here, and, I, and I, it's my job. For some of us in the midst of avoiding responsibility, we are here as a way of avoiding the consequences of our actions. We live one life and then we come to church to avoid the consequences. Well, I went to, to worship on Sunday, so that makes everything that I did Monday through Saturday okay. I shouldn't have to deal with the aftermath of that because I went to church on Sunday. It doesn't work like that. How many of us, again, will suddenly find ourselves doing good deeds and those good deeds seem to line up with those moments when we've blown it? 
even though we profess to know that we're not saved by our good works. Even though we know we're saved by grace, we feel strangely compelled to help out, to be generous, to lend a hand more often than not when we've done something wrong. And that's the entire rewiring that God's trying to do. He doesn't want us to do good because we've done wrong. He wants us to do good because of the good he's done in our life. How many of us in our lives are more like Saul than David in how we live in that we are content with making petty petty sacrifices rather than allowing God to circumcise our heart? Beloved, when's the last time you let the Lord circumcise your heart? When's the last time you let the Lord circumcise your heart? When's the last time you felt as vulnerable and as exposed as David makes himself in Psalm 51? When we say that Psalm, listen to what he says. When's the last time we've prayed a prayer like that? David is one of the best examples for us, so important, one of the best examples of how we can sin. We do sin, we are broken, and yet we can be forgiven in the covenant relationship. David is an example for us that repentance is our first and greatest responsibility in representing the kingdom of God. You want to see the kingdom of God unleashed in this world? Then the church's first and greatest responsibility, corporately and individually, is to repent. To model this submission and surrender before God. And when we do that, the power and authority of God is unleashed. But when we don't, we're weak. We're empty. We're powerless. David's story is for me an encouraging reminder that our Father does not allow our worst moments and actions to be the final definition of our lives. God doesn't allow our worst moments to be the final definition of our lives. We can be, we can do this, we can be covenant and kingdom people. We can follow Jesus even if the outworking of our discipleship is more like a roller coaster than it is a steady and straight path. If you're coming here this morning and your life feels more like a roller coaster, it doesn't feel like a steady and straight path in following Jesus, you're not alone. And you worship a God who understands. You worship a God who understood with David, who understands no less for you and I. And that God says in the midst of the roller coaster ride that we often make our lives, that our world often is, that despite our sin, our sin cannot destroy the covenant. Praise the Lord. Our sin cannot break the relationship that we have with our Father, with our God. God always offers us forgiveness for our sins. That covenant will not be broken by our sin of yesterday, of today, or tomorrow. But we can't escape the consequences of our sin. David repents and God forgives. And he doesn't lose his kingship as Saul does. But in taking responsibility for his actions, David does have to experience the consequences of his sin, including, if you remember, the death of his firstborn son by Bathsheba. Our sin cannot destroy our relationship with God, but to experience the fullness of that relationship, we have to take responsibility for our brokenness. We have to experience the consequences of our behavior. And beloved, The the manifestation in our lives that we have not come and sought the forgiveness from God we need is we're dodging the consequences of our actions. For some of us, it's big. For some of us, it's small. For some of us, it's small, but it feels really, really big. It doesn't really matter. If there in your life is brokenness, sin, that you have continued to try to deal with on your own or just not deal with and push aside, it is a hindrance 
to the fullness of the relationship that you are meant to have, that God wants to have with you as your father. And that's why when we gather, we confess. That's why part of our worship, what's wired into us in following Christ, not just when we accept Christ, but in believing in Christ and following him every moment of our lives, we have to practice this honest self-examination. We need, that's why we need each other, people who will reflect to us who we really are. We need Nathans, we need Samuels who are gonna tell us, show us honestly, in love, this is what's going on in your life. You got some serious wood in your eye, my friend. Take it out. Honest self-examination is necessary to, rep- to recognize the spiritual cancer in our lives. And when I say the, the spiritual cancer, what we tend to do in life and in the church more and more is we talk about the surfacey stuff, the symptoms of the deeper cancer that's in our life. You know, it's really great that you're going to stop watching television or you're going to drink less coffee because caffeine's bad for you. Or whatever it is, or you're going to stop making sure you don't use salty language every now and again. But those are symptoms of a deeper problem. Addiction is a symptom of a deeper problem, and we in the church need to encourage each other that we can face that. We need the covenant. We need the relationship. We need to invite God in, God who's knocking at our door, in order to truly face and see what needs to be cut out of our lives. And I say cancer. It needs to be cut out of our lives. The greatest temptation... And it's from the very beginning to the very end. The greatest temptation and power of the enemy is to underestimate the power of self-deception. Our ability to live in ignorance, our ability to live in denial is powerful. We need divine intervention. We need revelation. We need the relationship to help us to see the damage, the wound in our lives. But we also need repentance to turn around, to root it out. And that repentance, that power that we need to get it out, that cancer out of our bodies, comes from the power of the kingdom. We take responsibility for the brokenness, for the sin, for the cancer in our lives. And what God does is in submitting in that way, in surrendering before him, he performs surgery on us. How do you survive a heart transplant? By trusting the surgeon. By allowing the power of the surgeon to do his work. Beloved God's desire is to give us a heart transplant, not bypass surgery, a heart transplant. But we have to yield and let him do the work that he desires to do in us. Psalm 51, create in me, what? A clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart. I know it's scary. It's scary for me to think, well, i got to face the consequences of my sin. And some of you, raised in the Lutheran church, raised as good Christians, may go, no, we don't have to face the consequences of our sin. Yes, we do. We have to face the immediate consequences of our sin. Anything else is not true. But what is true, what you are thinking of, what we should all proclaim, praise the Lord, is that while we have to face the immediate consequences of our sin, we can and we will because Christ has dealt with the ultimate consequences of our sin. Jesus fights and wins the ultimate battle that results because of our sin, and that battle is death. He defeats death, and he passes that victory along to us through the gift, the power of forgiveness. It's out of that power, that forgiveness, that we can face the consequences of sin. We don't have to face the consequences, the immediate consequences of our lives powerless. We face it with the power of forgiveness that God gives to us. 
And because we have been forgiven by God, we can face those consequences because ultimately we know that those consequences are temporary. Don't misunderstand me. The consequences of sin in this world and in our lives are real. They leave a mark. But the wound is never fatal in Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus' victory on the cross, there will be reconciliation of all that is broken. There will be redemption of all that is lost. So the consequences that we have to face, the immediate consequences, they're real. They matter. But they're temporary. Beloved, covenant and kingdom, these are so foundational to our lives. I'm actually going to really quick try to give it to you visually to bring this together. We've been talking about it for weeks. Can I have the slide on the screen? (laughs) All right. Covenant. It's a way to look at it. It begins with knowing that God is our Father. The most important relationship in our lives is our relationship with God. But what's important about that relationship is how we understand it. And covenant is about, amongst all the other ways that God describes himself, he wants us to understand he is our father, our creator, our provider. And when we understand that, that informs our identity. We know who we are. We are children of God, children of our father. And out of that identity, we then have this purpose, this sense of purpose. When we ask ourselves, what should we be about? What should we do? We are dependent upon our Father. We live out of that identity, and that's obedience. We make obedience into a hard thing when we, make, when we invert the triangle. Obedience is a freeing thing. When you're living out of who you are, when you know who you are, and you're dependent upon the most important relationship in your life, obedience isn't hard. It's easy. It's freeing. But when you reverse it, And you go the opposite way. When our obedience, basically, we do what we do in order to establish our identity. What motivates us is, I'm going to do what's good for me. I'm going to do what's going to make other people happy. Then all of a sudden, we are inverting the triangle and we're inverting the covenant. It's all about us. Our obedience is hard. It is difficult because it's tough to please people all the time. We're never happy with ourselves. And so our identity is always shaky and unstable. Because it always changes. Depends on how we see things. It changes on what other people say. It changes on what we have. When we're young, we're strong. When we're older, we're not so strong. And when our identity is co-opted, we look up and we don't, can't understand God. We're afraid of God. We don't believe in God. Because we can't see that God's our Father anymore. It's got to go this way. This, when life goes this way, not only our relationship with God, but our relationship with each other is transformed. We're not in competition anymore. It's not me versus you. It's us together as children of our Heavenly Father. So many of us, we're stuck here. And why it's so important that we get this is because until we understand this, this is not possible. God has called us into relationship because God wants us to know he's not just our father. God wants us to know he's also our king. He's the creator of the universe. He's the king of the universe. And he is doing a work. There is a battle going on. God is reclaiming lost territory. God is transforming the world. And his intention is not just for people to sit on the sidelines. His intention is to use us to be a part of this transformation, this kingdom of heaven coming to earth. And when we know who we are, When we know that we're a child of the Father, now we can understand and accept that our Father is also King. And when we have that, we have the ability to be responsible. When you're confident in your relationship, you have the ability to be responsible. 
We see this when we raise teenagers. It's no different with God with us. When we know who we are, when we have the relationship, the covenant, the kingdom's unleashed in us. What happens? God gives us authority. Authority. Because now we're not having authority for ourselves. We're having authority that's given to us, that comes out of our dependence upon God, and that authority leads to our power. So when we say, what difference can I make? How can I make a difference? How can I change anything? Who am I? Like Moses said last week, God says, if you know who you are, then you know who I am. And if I'm your father, I'm giving you authority. I'm the one who's sending you. I'm the one who's called you. You don't have to make apologies. You don't have to make excuses. You don't have to pull out a resume. I sent you. Therefore, you have all the authority you need. And if you live out of that authority, guess what's going to come? My power. And guess what? You will see me working through you. You will see lives transformed, community shaped. Beloved, this is happening. And if we're not engaging this, if we're not participating in this, if we're not experiencing this, then we're missing something. Where have we lost our understanding of how this relationship and this responsibility works? God doesn't want us to stay in this perpetual place of, well, we messed up. Okay, God, I'm sorry. Okay, you forgive me. Oh, I messed up again. God, wa- I mean, God wants us, he realizes that we're continuing to be shaped and transformed, but God wants our, if you will, our sin to be experienced in the midst of exercising the responsibility that we've been given. Does that make sense? And too many of us have become stunted in our growth. You may be different in terms of your physical age, but your spiritual age has not advanced at all. And God God's not done with any of us until he comes again or brings us home. David is a great example for us of how covenant and kingdom come together. Another way just to think of this, to just bring it back to the Bible, is covenant, this idea of relationship, is when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest of all the commandments? What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God, know that God is your father, and love him, be devoted to him, and out of that, love your neighbor as yourself. The great commandment is covenant. It's all about the relationship. And then later on, what does Jesus say to his disciples who now know who they are? He gives them the great commission. I give you authority and power. Go, therefore, and make disciples in the name of who? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them everything that I've commanded you. And Jesus actually says elsewhere, before he gives the actual great commission, he actually tells the disciples, blows your mind. If you've ever thought about this, Jesus says to the disciples, you're going to do the same things I've done. No, no, you're going to do greater things than I've done. Greater things than Jesus? That's what he says. Church, body of Christ, my fellow children of the Father, we are about greater things than Jesus. And a great example of that And it's a classic Sunday school story, one that we love, is the very text that we look at right here. Commandment, the great commandment and the great commission, in many ways typified in a simple Sunday school story. David and Goliath. 1 Samuel 17, it's about covenant confidence that leads to kingdom courage. And here it is. David, as we heard, goes down to the valley to fight with covenant confidence. If David had listened to his brothers, if David had listened to King Saul, if David had listened to the surrounding terrified troops, fear would have gripped him and he would not have lived out the covenant identity that he had, the anointing that was placed upon him. 
Instead, David was confident. He was secure in his identity as God's child, and he depended upon the strength and will of his father to see the battle through. Covenant confidence filled David with kingdom courage. King, King Saul, it's hilarious, gives, doesn't get it, and he gives David his armor for battle. But David ends up taking off the armor. Not a really good idea. Practically, pragmatically, but David takes off the armor. He fights the giant bare-chested with only a sling and five smooth stones because those weren't his real weapons. The source of David's courage was the authority that he realized he had been given, the power of his father that was at work in him and that would work through him. That's why when he faced the giant, he gave the greatest armor that we have, which is the word of God. His armor was the word of God that he spoke before Goliath with certainty when he said, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into my hands. It's a cute, loving Sunday school story, but it is a vision, a picture of the reality that God intends for all of our lives. David spoke that way because he had courage that only could come from an understanding of the kingdom, that God is in charge, that his father was in control. So, beloved, perhaps a better understanding this morning of being a person after God's own heart is not so much copying God's heart of being like God, but rather being a person after God's heart means pursuing God's heart. Going after it, focusing upon, longing for our human heart to beat in rhythm with God's own love and grace. David was a man after God's own heart because he consistently made room for the word of God to rule in his heart. His decisions were made because he was driven by God's call upon his life. He sought to align his heart, his life, with God's heartbeat. He's a further example for us that we can truly face the giants in our lives. That covenant confidence leads to kingdom courage. And covenant confidence and kingdom courage mean that anything is possible in our lives and in this world. Beloved, what's the driving force behind your life this morning? From where does your confidence and courage come? Where does your confidence and courage come? Who are you listening to? Are you listening to God? who says, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid? In the specific examples of your life, what you're going through right now, are you hearing the word of God that says, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid? Or are you listening to all the voices of doubt and despair, who out of fear never enjoy the mountaintop view of success that is empowered by God himself? We're two weeks now after an election. There are things to be concerned about. Israel's under attack. We've got a debt crisis, a financial cliff. And again, let me say it again as your pastor, these are the moments for our opportunity to witness as the church while the rest of the world is cowering in fear like King Saul and the soldiers. We are called to be David, to say that the battle is the Lord's. That we got this. That yes, we will experience the immediate consequences of our sins, but we will not perish because our God is in control. Does anyone else believe this besides me? Does anyone else believe this besides me? Thank you. It's always telling to me. You want to get, people don't have a problem talking about how bad things are. 
They don't have a problem talking about how bad it's going to get. we got to start speaking with the same intensity with how good things will be because the end of the story is assured. Jesus comes back. God wins. God's in control. Beloved, fear builds walls. Courage rooted in God tears them down. Fear closes doors. Courage opens them up. Fear paralyzes the soul and short-circuits our opportunities to minister to others. But courage that comes from being in line with the will of God gives us the strength, gives strength to the spiritually paralyzed parts of our body and raises the spiritual lame to their feet again. Fear makes the giants in our lives seem taller and undefeatable. Kingdom courage says the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Kingdom courage says Jesus already faced sin's greatest Goliath, death. And when he did, he left no stone unturned. A person after God's own heart is one who finds kingdom courage when all others are afraid because out of covenant confidence he knows that the battle is the Lord's and not our own. God's heart is for the world. God's heart is for the world, and if we want his heart, if we want to be people who go after, who seek to live by the rhythm of his heartbeat, we have to face the giants in our lives. And sometimes, oftentimes, the biggest Goliaths that loom over us are the sins that we have to confront in our own lives. The battle of the kingdom, more often than not, begins at home. But we can face those giants any giants that come before us, if we are grounded in our relationship with our Father, and if we let that relationship be the source of our authority and our power for representing our King, when covenant confidence and kingdom courage collide, the promises and truths of Scripture take flesh and not only defeat our own personal giants, they overtake and change the world. So let the world speak of financial cliffs. Let the world speak of doom and gloom. And I don't want to turn a blind eye, but beloved, I look for a new heavens and a new earth. Amen.